0: Good morning. He is risen. Let's try that again. So when I say he is risen, respond with he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. All right. My name is Justin Owens, and I'm one of the elders here at Three Rivers Church, and we are so glad to have you here with us this Easter morning. So we're going to be in Matthew 28 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have your Bible, get there. Easter is the day that we set aside to recognize and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in a real sense, we celebrate the resurrection every time we gather together. It's the reason we meet on Sundays, the first day of the week. We take communion each week to remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel, that Christ died in our place for our sins and rose from the grave, and that He ascended to the Father, and that one day He will return. So as we look this morning at the resurrection, And the events that followed Uh, we got to begin by looking at why was this necessary why was all of this necessary why did Jesus have to die now in the interest of time I'm not going to read or go through all of Matthew 25 26 and 27 Um, but those chapters lay out the arrest and trial if you can call it that crucifixion death and burial of Jesus but why was it necessary for Jesus to die we sum up what we call the meta narrative of Scripture, God's grand story, with four words creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That God created a perfect world. And imagine for a moment a world with no sin, no broken relationships, no sickness, no death, perfection, and perfect unity with each other and with God. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's command. They disobeyed Him. And they chose to believe a lie. And as a result, they brought about what we call the fall. The curse of sin has spread to all things. All things are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationships with each other are broken. Our relationship with the earth is broken. All things experience the curse of sin, curse of the fall. But God in His great mercy did not leave us without hope. He did not leave us forever doomed to be separated from Him. But God made a way of redemption. Jesus Christ came to earth and dwelt among us. He was fully man and fully God, born of a virgin, never sinned, and He lived the perfect life of obedience that we failed to live. Isaiah foretold that He would then take on our sins He would die the death that we deserved, and by his wounds we would be healed. That death took place on a cross at the hands of the Romans at the request of the Jews. And then Jesus would rise from the dead, just as he foretold, as we'll see today. And he ascended to the Father where he awaits the day of his return, where he will fully and finally bring about the restoration of all things. He will make all things new. He is making all things new, and there will come a day when all things are made new. That's the story of Scripture. That's the meta-narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And why is the resurrection so central to the Christian faith? As Keith mentioned, Paul lays that out explicitly for us in 1 Corinthians 15. He reminds them that Jesus died and rose according to the Scriptures, and that if Christ is not raised... ...then we're still dead in our sins. And if Christ is not raised, then we are to be pitied more than all other people. Because our hope is in nothing. So the resurrection, the good news, the victory. So if you got your Bible, Matthew 28. We're going to read the whole chapter. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... ...Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb... And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And while they were going, This chapter can be broken down into three sections. The first section is the resurrection, the actual event of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's followed by two different responses. So the second section is the response of continued unbelief. We particularly see this continued unbelief in part of the religious leaders of the day. And then the second response, the third part of this chapter is the Great Commission. Worship and obedience by those who by faith believe. So the first part, the resurrection. Jesus was crucified on what we now remember as Good Friday. And when he was taken off the cross, the Jews had asked Pilate to remove the bodies to hasten the deaths, even though Jesus had already died, the two thieves had not. So to hasten the deaths of those that remained because it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. They didn't want to leave the bodies up until the Sabbath to have to deal with them and therefore become defiled On the Sabbath day. The Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and lasted until sundown on Saturday. So in verse one, notice the timeline of events here, the day after the Sabbath. So for us, Sunday morning as dawn approached. That's why many places, some of us grew up, there was a sunrise service. That wasn't just an arbitrary, hey, let's get together at sunrise, because that'd be cool. It's because it was at the dawn of the first day of the week that the women went to the tomb. And they went there with the intent to anoint Jesus' body with spices to kind of finish the burial preparations they didn't get to do as was their custom. And in the timeline of events here, even in death, burial, and resurrection, there's an honoring of the Sabbath rhythm that was established by God in creation in Genesis 1. God created all things in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested the Sabbath. Then he gave the Sabbath to his people to be remembered as part of that. Jesus died the day before the Sabbath, laid in the tomb on the Sabbath, and the next day he was risen from the grave. So we gather on Sunday, first day of the week, as a marker of celebrating him as our resurrected King and Savior. The angel of the Lord descends, rolls back this stone, there's an earthquake that takes place, creation responds to this event that takes place. He rolls back the stone, the guards tremble in fear, They become like dead men. They basically pass out in fear. And notice the contrast of the response of the women. They're afraid, but the angel says to them, do not be afraid. He doesn't address the guards who passed out, but he addresses the women who came to see Jesus and says, do not be afraid. And then he acknowledges their reason for being there. He acknowledges the crucifixion and their intent in coming to see Jesus' body at the tomb. But then he tells them something, something that we can't rush through. We can't miss, right? This is it. This is the moment. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said, that's awesome. We don't celebrate around a tomb today. At least not a tomb that has a body in it. There's not a memorial where believers travel all over the world to go to the tomb of a great man that is still dead. Because the tomb is empty. He is not there. He has risen, just as he said. And then he invites them to come and see where he lay to witness that there is no body there anymore. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he's risen just as he said. He had foretold of his death and resurrection multiple times. He had told them that all this had to take place in just this way to fulfill all of Scripture, to fulfill all that was written. These events had to take place. Just like Paul said to the Corinthians, it was all according to the Scripture. Just as he said, he is now risen. Death could not hold him, and the grave could not keep him. And after going to see The empty tomb, the women are commissioned by the angel to then spread this good news of the resurrection. They're the first ones sent with the message of good news. And there's an urgency to their mission. Go quickly. This is important. This can't wait. This is revolutionary. It is so vital to the future that it was urgent that they go and tell the others quickly there is no time waste and so they depart with fear and great joy and notice their fear didn't stop them from obeying they were afraid but they went and on their way to carry this good news to others who do they run into they run into jesus and what is their response how do the women respond when they see jesus they worship that's the same response we should have when we meet jesus we worship. And Jesus reassures them and tells them again not to be afraid, and he recommissions them to go and to tell others, to tell the disciples that they can meet him, that he's alive. There's something here that I don't want us to overlook. When Jesus was tempted in the desert after his baptism, he told Satan to worship the Lord and serve him only. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6:13. So by accepting their open worship. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord, your God. I am the only one worthy of your worship and your service. If you read the Gospels, Jesus didn't hide who he claimed to be. There are points all throughout where people pick up stones literally ready to kill him because they recognize that he is claiming to be on par with God. He is claiming God as his father. He is saying, I am the son of man, I am the son of God, I have the authority to forgive sins. And the people recognize that, and they pick up stones, and they want to stone him. At his trial, before his crucifixion, they plainly say that you're making yourself out to be God. This is, this is not good, this is blasphemy. Unless it's true. They just didn't believe it was true. And then here we see him openly accept their worship. Because he is the Lord their God. And you can compare that with something we see in the book of Acts. There's several times where the people want to worship Peter or Paul and Barnabas. But they quickly respond with like, we're not worthy of worship. Do not worship us. We are just men. But Jesus doesn't turn away their worship because he is worthy of their worship. And he's worthy of our worship. And he's worthy of worship of all peoples in all places at all times. The only right response to the risen Savior is to worship. And now in the second part of this chapter, we see the response of the guards and the religious leaders. They continue in their unbelief. There's no denying that these events took place. The guards clearly saw the angel. They knew that the tomb was empty. I mean, don't you think that at least when they woke up from their fright, they went and peeked in, oh no, the body's gone? Like, there's no denying that the body is gone. There's no denying that an angel came down and rolled the stone away. The religious leaders had no reason to doubt that story. In fact, it was because of Jesus' claims before he died that he would rise again, that there was even a guard at the tomb in the first place. They hired the Romans to secure the tomb. And yet even after these events, they continue in their unbelief. They gather together to figure out what do we need to do. They pay off the guards. They promise them that they'll take care of them if and when this gets back to Pilate. And then they direct them to spread a lie. A false story that becomes prominent amongst the Jews. Even though it's actually a pretty weak story, if you think about it. Um, The details don't make sense. He came and stole the body while we were asleep. But we're Roman guards who know better than to fall asleep when we're guarding something. And we know the punishment for that is death. And um, how did we get overpowered by a bunch of fishermen? Um, But it's the story they told. Sometimes it's easier to believe a lie than it is to accept the truth. When the truth challenges us or convicts us or is not what we expect it to be. Sometimes it's easier to believe a lie. And they chose to go on believing in something that was not true because they could not accept the reality of the fact that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He just wasn't what they expected. Despite all the miraculous things that had taken place before, during, after and up to the crucifixion and resurrection, they stubbornly continue in their unbelief. It's a similar response to the people had when they came out of Egypt. They continually complained and rebelled and disobeyed and questioned God in spite of all the miraculous things that they had seen. And sadly, this is true of many who hear the good news of Jesus Christ today. He is the resurrected King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. Many people experience supernatural things. They've heard supernatural truths and yet continue to respond in unbelief. And refuse to repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. As we share this good news in our daily lives, there will be many who repent and believe and come to faith. But there will also be many who hear and continue in their unbelief. And in the last section, we see the response of the disciples. We see the response of those who did believe. They worship and they obey. This is where we get what we call the Great Commission the marching orders of the church. The disciples go to where Jesus had told them to go, through the message brought to them by the women who were commissioned to spread that good news. And they respond when they see Jesus by worshiping him, even though some doubted. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now the previous group had doubts too. their doubts led them to continue in unbelief. The disciples here worship in spite of their doubt. They worship even though they have doubts. They don't let their doubts or questions or fears keep them from Jesus or from worshiping him. We can come to God with all of our doubts and all of our fears. We can choose to respond and worship in spite of those doubts and fears. Jesus does not rebuke them. He instead accepts their worship And he commissions them to go and disciple the nations. To spread this good news of the gospel of the kingdom to all corners of the earth. Now often when we quote the Great Commission we skip this first part in verse 18. But we can't skip over the first thing that Jesus says. They've seen now the resurrected Jesus. They worship him and he says all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our being, our doing, our going, our serving, etc., etc., rests on the fact that all authority belongs to Jesus. All authority forever. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, Satan offers him temporary earthly authority in exchange for worship. If you'll just worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the earth. Jesus now proclaims that he has all authority, in heaven and earth always and forever and that he alone is worthy of worship. Sin offers a temporary substitute that will not satisfy and it will not last. And Jesus is worthy of our worship and he has all authority. And the emphasis of the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. That's why we say that for the glory of God We will disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who learns from a master, a teacher. Jesus is our master. We are his followers. We are his pupils. We are his students. Our life is bound together with him as our master and our Lord. Commenting on this chapter, Tony Evans said, "...the effectiveness of a church, therefore, is evaluated not in the number of its members, but by its disciple-making." It's the absence of discipleship that keeps a church impotent and ineffective. Because by not taking up Christ's mission of discipleship, its people cannot draw on Christ's authority. And that's, that's strong. We are given the mission to make disciples. And our failure to do that leaves us unable to draw on Christ's authority. Christ has authority over all things, and he has sent us out in that authority with a mission, with a task, with a purpose. As Keith said, we weren't saved to just sit in a holding pattern waiting for this cosmic redemption to take place. We are commissioned as agents to carry the good news of this message of redemption to all the corners of the earth. We're invited to participate in the renewal of all things. We are the first fruits of renewed, created order. And we are sent out as ambassadors to go and proclaim this good news to all nations. So that all peoples might hear this good news and repent and believe. And like the women leaving that tomb, it's an urgent task. We are saved to a mission. And for us not to participate in that mission is disobedience. Our mission is to make Disciples, And we do that by going, or as we're going. We do it by baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't miss the Trinity there. Beautiful picture of the Trinity. And we teach those who repent and believe to observe all things that Jesus commanded. And part of our task is going to all nations, all peoples. There's a theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew of the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish community, being included in God's salvation. In the lineage of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew, there are four non-Jewish women included in that genealogy. Matthew records the events of the Magi coming to worship Jesus. We've seen as we've been studying through the book of Galatians that God foretold the gospel to Abraham, saying to him, Through you, all nations will be blessed. This blessing in Jesus is meant for all nations, all peoples, all time. Revelation 9, or 7, 9, and 10 looks forward to the day, quoting Revelation 7 here, when behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, every nation, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white. With palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a glorious picture of what will one day be a sure reality around the throne of God. People from all nations, all tribes and languages, worshiping the Lord together. Listen, we have a mission from our resurrected King, from Jesus to disciple the nations. And there are people all over the world that need to hear this message of good news. There's a sad reality in our world today that over two billion people, that's a big number. Take a minute and let that sit with you. Two billion people have zero access to the gospel today. Two billion people. That will most likely live their entire lives and never hear this good news two billion people there's only 340 million people in america so a lot of people a good chunk of the world has zero access to the gospel and there are lost people all over our city all over roman floyd county who need to be called to repentance and faith in jesus christ we cannot be content to sit back keep this good news to ourselves. We should be busy with this urgent task that we've been given by King Jesus to make disciples of all nations. Now some people might ask why this emphasis on the world? Why this emphasis on all nations when there are lost people right here? But we believe, and it is proven true, that if we start with reaching the nations, we reach our city as well. If we go to the nations, we get our city. But if we never get past our city, A, we'll never get to the nations, and B, we'll never actually reach our city. So our end is the nations because that's Jesus' end. His end is all nations, all peoples, worshiping around the throne. Jesus ends the Great Commission with this wonderful assurance that he is with them always to the end of the age. And he is with us always. As we obey, he's there with us. We go in his authority, and we go with his presence. That's a great comfort. Without those two things, we're hopeless in this task. We're we're powerless to follow Jesus on our own. But with his authority and his presence, it's a sure thing. Because he has done it. And he invites us to participate with him in that. So what do we do with all of this? All of this that we see, what do we do today, what do we do tomorrow, what do we do this week, how do we live our lives in light of this glorious truth that he is risen, he is not in the tomb, he has saved us with a purpose, what do we do with all of that? Well number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to repent and believe the good news, you need to be saved, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and declaring the need to repent and believe So I invite you this morning, if you're here and you need to do that, I'll be in the back during our singing. Some of the pastors will be back there. Turn to someone sitting next to you and just tell them, hey, I I need to know Jesus. We'd love to counsel you through that. We'd love to counsel you through what it means to follow Jesus. So number one, if you're here, I invite you to follow Jesus. Number two, the only right response for us as believers is to worship. The women encountered Jesus and they worshipped. The disciples encountered Jesus and they worshipped. Our only right response to encountering the risen Jesus is to worship him. He is the Lord our God and he alone is worthy of all our praise. Number three, the greatest commandments as identified by Jesus are how we respond in worship. That's worship practically lived out. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love. Love of God, love of others. That is how we practically live out a life of worship. And that leads us to number four, the Great Commission. We go and make disciples out of our identity as followers of Jesus in His authority and with His presence. Disciple making is our business as a church. It's the job of every follower of Jesus, not just the elders, Not just ministry leaders, not just a few special forces people that we call missionaries and send around the world. It's our job. It's your job. Each and every single one of us is to be a disciple maker. And college students, I want to challenge you specifically for a moment. If you're not sure what you're going to do when you graduate, what if you're able to get a job, live and serve somewhere strategically around the world for the advancement of God's kingdom? That could be in North America. It could be somewhere else in the world. This time in your life is full of endless possibilities. And if that intrigues you, come and see me. We can equip you and help you find the right place, help you get connected, send you to the nations using your vocation, your education to get a job and strategically engage in the mission of God around the world. And really anyone who's interested in that for that matter, come and see me. We're building out a training pipeline for global engagement work, and would love for you to be a part of that. Let's be busy about the task that Jesus has given us to make disciples of all nations. We are all sent ones with the mission to disciple the nations beginning right here in Rome and Floyd County and to our surrounding areas. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So as the band makes their way up here, they're going to lead us in a response of worship and singing I'm going to close this in corporate prayer through Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38. We've been praying this for a few months, and as we ask him, the Lord has answered our prayers. He is the Lord of of the harvest, and he invites us to ask him. Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38 says, Thus says the Lord our God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So we pray these three things. So take a moment and ask the Lord to increase our people. Take 10 seconds. Then take 10 seconds and ask the Lord if he will increase our holiness to make us holy as he is holy, a people fit for service in his kingdom. Number three, if you'll ask the Lord to increase our sending so that all places might know that he is the Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to make the reality of your resurrection cause us to respond in the only appropriate way, and that is to worship you with all that we are. May you increase our people. May there be many more in Rome and Floyd County and around the world who hear this good news, who repent and believe. And may you make us a holy people whose lives are pleasing to you and fit for service in your kingdom. Lord, as you do that, would you increase our sending You've given us a mission. You've equipped us for that task. You go with us in that, and you've promised success. So, would you increase our sending to those who need to hear this week, right where we are? And may you be glorified in everything we say and everything we do. And we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask.